I'm so glad that you came to mine. That's, that, that's what's most important. Um, Thank you and good luck. Yes, yeah. I'm just going to remember this right now before it all goes downhill. This many people came. Um, so I, I work for Mockingbird. I, I'm the editor for the magazine. And um, we, we put out a forgiveness issue um, probably a year ago. No, probably two years ago. And it was sort of my favorite to put together. Um, we interviewed uh, the warden of the world's nicest prison, uh, Arnie Nilsson, who's uh, you know a Scandinavian Norwegian like uh, psychotherapist, and uh, he's also the warden of of this this jail that's also an island. It's like a getaway, and. Um, People have, have committed violent offenses, but they're taken to this island, and, and they're taught how to like uh, wrangle horses, and they're taught how to garden and do all this stuff. And um, that sort of blew me away. And then we also have, um, I mean, Mockingbird is constantly inundated with stories of grace, stories of forgiveness. And they're always, um, they're always just these um, overt, parables of forgiveness, you know, like a, a one-time act that sort of solves everything. And while that is very, uh, very beautiful and very true uh, picture of sort of God's divine favor and uh, the message of the cross, uh, forgiveness is a lot messier than that, especially in our interpersonal relationships. Um, one story in particular I think about is um, a, a woman in Minnesota, uh, her, her, her son was, was brutally murdered. And, um, and while they, they captured the murderer, um, she became pen pals with him. And she sort of fought for his um, early release. And as he was released, they became next door neighbors. And she sort of like adopted him as her own son. And it's this incredible story of forgiveness. And it's the sort of thing that, that melts your heart. But at the same time, I've, I've never personally experienced such uh, an overt act of forgiveness. Um, that, it's, to me, it's a picture of God's forgiveness. But, um, but there's, there's also some more, like, um, there's some more gray areas. And so today I want to talk about the psychology of forgiveness and how psychologists have sort of um, taken interest in the concept of forgiveness can you hear me okay back there? Okay. So um, it's, it became really popular in the 90s with sort of like the, the upswing of positive psychology and, and psychologists wanting to focus on all of these positive attributes about, um, about human nature rather than all the neurotic, narcissistic sort of things we do. Um, psychologists have wanted to focus on some of the positive things. And forgiveness is definitely a positive quality. And there was a Christian writer uh, named Lewis Smedes. I don't know if anybody's heard of his book, Forgive and Forget. But, but it was not a book of psychology, but it was a book that sort of like pushed forgiveness and the study of forgiveness into the sort of um, uh, like psychology realm. Like, let's think about how this works scientifically. Um, and since then, I mean, there are more theories about forgiveness than there are, like, transgressions to be forgiven. You know, it is, it's, it's unbelievable. If you, if you look up uh, forgiveness in sort of the academic world, it's everywhere. And, um, and it's really only 30 years old as, as, a, as an object of study. Um, but what psychologists have found and agreed about is that um, forgiveness tends to um, help marriages live longer. Um, forgiveness tends to uh, help individuals uh, feel better about the relationships that they're in. People tend to say that their, their marriages are happier or their relationships are um, more satisfying when uh, forgiveness is something that's important to them. And, and uh, on like a, like a biological level, on a physical level, um, Forgiveness has proven to help people live longer because uh, unforgiveness is such a stressful um, emotional framework that that forgiveness is sort of a, re a release of that. So 
there's all these findings about the benefits. Um, and of course, it's, it's a tenet, it's a huge tenet of Christianity. Like you can almost not talk about forgiveness without talking about Christianity because it's, it's almost everything Jesus talks about. You know, there's the not seven times, but 70 times, seven times. You, you must forgive. And um, as far as east is from west, so are your sins from, uh, from me. And then uh, Jesus talks about if someone hits you in the cheek, you turn your other one and you give them that one too. And so there's just this overt sense of this is, this is the way to live. Um, but the problem is that we don't really do it and we're really bad at the art of forgiveness. And as much as we want to talk about how powerful it is and how beneficial it is, um, it seems that when we are transgressed against, um, we are wired not to forgive. Our initial inclinations are not to forgive. And just to paint the picture, um, I wanted to play this clip from uh, three billboards outside of Ebbing, Missouri. Has anybody seen that? Um, okay, so just to set it up, if you don't know, it, I mean, it, it won some Oscars this year. Frances McDormand is, uh, is an angry mother. Uh, her, her daughter has been uh, brutally murdered, and uh, she puts up these three billboards to sort of call out the sheriff of the town to say, you know, um, my daughter was murdered seven months ago. Still, there have been no arrests. What are you doing? And so this clip I'm, I'm going to play is um, the first sort of interaction um, since the billboards came up between the sheriff, uh, who's played by Woody Harrelson, and Francis McDormand. And the first thing you realize is that uh, Woody Harrelson's character is extremely likable. And you can tell that he actually cares about this woman and what, um, like, what, she's, what she's feeling, the suffering that she's feeling. But at the same time, um, what she's asking for is impossible. I'd do anything to catch the guy who did it, Mrs. Hayes, but when the DNA don't match no one who's ever been arrested, and when the DNA don't match any other crime nationwide, and when there wasn't a single eyewitness from the time she left your house to the time we found her, well, right now, there ain't too much more we can do. Could pull blood from every man and boy in this town over the age of eight. There's civil rights laws prevents that, Mrs. Hayes. And what if he was just passing through town? Pull blood from every man in the country, then. Then what if he was just passing through the country? If it was me, I'd start up a database. Every male baby was born, stick him on it. And as soon as he'd done something wrong, cross-reference it, make 100% certain it was a correct match, then kill him. Yeah, well, there's definitely civil rights laws prevents that. I'm doing everything I can to track him down. I don't think those billboards is very fair. The time it took you to get out here whining like a bitch, Willoughby. Some other poor girl's probably out there being butchered right now. But I'm glad you got your priorities straight. I'll say that for you. There's something else, Mildred. I got cancer. I'm dying. I know it. Huh? I know it. Most everybody in town knows it. And you still put up those billboards? Well, they wouldn't be as effective after you croak, right?
Okay, yeah, that's real uplifting, isn't it? Um, so the whole movie, this is the only clip I could find from the movie that doesn't have like 18 uh, F-bombs. F that's okay because the next two clips I'm gonna play have plenty of them, so, so we're gonna make up for it. But um, yeah, the whole, the whole movie is, is, uh, is totally this parable about the, the sort of limits of justice and that there is nothing that will bring her daughter back. And yet, and so this, the justice, um, the justice that she seeks and uh, the hole that she's trying to fill is completely unfillable. Um, the, there, there's, there's perils of unforgiveness, um, obviously, and you see that even as um, there's a little bit of empathy garnered from like Woody Harrelson's cancer diagnosis, um, she's, um, the transgression is, is so alive. She's so wounded by this transgression that she's blind to empathy. She can't, she can't see anything else. Um, so the question is why? Why are we, why are we unforgiving? And um, what psychology tends to say is that when a transgression happens and, and forgiveness uh, is dependent upon a transgression. Some, someone transgresses, uh, does you wrong. And when that happens, what we tend to do is we tend to have a very high appraisal of ourselves and a very low appraisal of the offending party or uh, the perpetrator. And um, so there's this study, let's see. Um, and you don't have to read that, but basically the the study is saying that um, there's this thing called the attribution bias. When, when someone transgresses or offends us, we tend to attribute to that person um, negative characteristics across the board. So it's not just that they were a good person, they did something wrong, but we tend to think that they are not likely to, to give us a straight answer about what happened. Uh, we don't tend to trust that they could possibly make amends. Um, we, we tend to think instead that their bad deed was representative of who they are, that they are bad people. Um, the other can do no right. And then there's the second study um, by some of the same people. And um, yeah, it's called the Perpetrator Victim Account Estimation Bias, which in English is just that we have self-serving narratives. We have, we have stories that we tell that put us in positive lights or put our, our particular take on a story to, in a positive light. Um, and, and we tend to, um, we tend to hold on to those narratives despite any evidence to the contrary. So, um, when I did the sort of like, uh, breakout preview on the site. I was talking about a, an episode of Invisibilia. I don't know if anybody listens to that podcast. We talk about it all the time on Mockingbird. Um, but there was one particular episode that was called The Pattern Problem. And it tells the story of this woman who um, grew up in, in sort of um, in a family of addiction. She, she became an addicted individual herself, got into a lot of trouble. And, and then relapsed and did it again after making a comeback. But this time she was gonna make a second comeback. She goes to law school and um, she's studying for the bar and um, the bar of her state just um, refuse her. And the reason they refuse her is because the patterns that she exemplified prior um, don't show a very hopeful outcome. Even though she's gone to law school, she's done so much to, to make a change in her life, the patterns, the, the sort of, um, the estimation bias that they have is that she, she doesn't, she doesn't really, um, she's not a promising bet, I guess. Um, so that's what happens in a transgression. We tend to have these really high expectations and, and a really high estimation of ourselves, but not so much for the offender. Um, and then the other thing is, when a transgression happens, we have to face dissonance. We have to face uh, this stressful gap between what we expect things should be like and what has actually happened. 
and um, psychologists have called this the injustice gap. Um, and it's basically, you have this, um, you have this distance between the ideal outcome and where you are right now emotionally, like how, how you're feeling about the crime that was committed. And so here um, on this little chart, there's the dark gray um, is sort of like um, the, expect, the expectation of how the outcome is going to go. So um, like right here, this is like right after um, a crime was committed or someone transgressed. So the current way you're feeling is way down here. But 100 is sort of like where you want to be. 100 is like, OK, if I get my justice. Uh, so for um, Mildred in Three Billboards, the expected outcome is that she'll get her daughter back. And if, if not, if not her daughter back, which is impossible, at least justice for the guy who did it. And, and so um, what, what this guy Everett Worthington says is that as time goes on, um, our outcome, our current outcome may, may improve. Like, at first we were initially so wounded, um, but, but as time goes on, our emotional state kind of improves. We, you know, time heals. But what really changes um, our outcome is our expectations, because our expectations, um, like Mildred's expectations, have not changed. She hasn't come to terms with the fact that, like, this isn't going to change um, even if they find the guy, even if they find, um, even if he's brought to justice, she's still going to be suffering. And so these last two here um, is like, this is the best possible outcome, but the top here is Mildred's like remaining expectation because the gap is still there between the is and the ought. And then here, this is like if Mildred were to actually accept the fact that, okay, my, my daughter is not coming back, um, and then there are still other uh, rapists and killers out there, and I can't solve that. But what I can adjust is my own expectations about how things are going to go. Um, so um, this is how uh, Worthington his, his chart we just looked at, this is how he defines unforgiveness. Um, and the way that he sees it is that unforgiveness is just one way that we cope with this dissonance. Like, if there's, if there's, a, if there's a big gap, a big injustice gap between the way things are and the way things should be, one of the ways we cope with that really uncomfortable distance is we stay in unforgiveness. And unforgiveness... Uh, to Worthington is just this complex of emotions. It's, it's a bunch of different emotions, but we all know them. Uh, resentment, uh, hostility, bitterness, hatred, anger, fear. And he also says that it's not an immediate reaction to a transgression. If, if someone transgresses and we find out, the first feeling we feel is anger or fear. But unforgiveness is what happens after we've had time to ruminate on it. Um, for him, it's it, like unforgiveness cannot happen if we haven't had time to think about it. And a lot of times, once we've had time to think about it, um, we are just so insistent on the ought. We're so insistent on the way things ought to be and aren't. And so unforgiveness or... Uh, you, you know these people in your life. You may be one of these people um, who are the walking wounded. You know, the, it doesn't take but just one small question and uh, their grievances are aired. And you've heard the grievances numerous times. Um, there's an insistence on the way things, um, how, the, how the way things are don't match up with how they should have gone. Uh, and you can't seem to get out of that cycle. So, speaking of oughts and speaking of transgressions, um, this is sort of thinking about like a singular transgression, but if you think about the people that you transgress against the most, and these psychologists will say the same thing, the people that you offend the most are the people you love the most, the people that you spend the most time with, the people that you live with, share a bed with, 
Um, and so I want to talk about transgression on a more microscopic level, on a relational level. And, um, and so speaking of aughts, uh, there's, I want to play these clips from This Is 40. Uh, has anybody seen This Is 40? Judd Apatow, Paul Rudd's in it, Leslie Mann. Um, so they're married, and uh, they're both turning 40, like in the same week. And of course, Leslie Mann is like in total denial. She's like, she has a birthday cake that uh, has 38 on it. And then uh, Paul Rudd's going to have this big party, and they've made big plans, and they're really excited. Um, but they also have this discussion before the party where Leslie Mann says, okay, so all the scientists say that your 40s are the time where you are happiest in your life. And Paul Rudd's like, they say that? And, and she's like, yes, a lot of people say that. And, and she said, everything that we need to be happy is right here. Like, it's right here. We just have to grab it. And so she makes this list. They make this list together. Paul Rudd wants no part of the list. But the list is, you know, we're going we're gonna to eat better. Um, we're going to stop smoking. And Paul Rudd's like, yeah, you, you should stop smoking. And, and she says, we're going to work on our anger. And Paul says, yes, it would be really great if you worked on your anger. And, and they, uh, Leslie Mann says, and you're not giving any money to your dad anymore, are you? Um, because he's a grown man, and you shouldn't be giving him money. And he's like, yeah, yeah, I haven't done that for years. And um, they're going to have sex more. And... Uh, and so, and Paul Rudd's been using Viagra but not telling her, and so they sort of have this conversation about um, sex, but basically they are making a decision to sort of move, um, move in a new direction and claim the happiness that they've, that's laying before them. So the, the truth is that Paul Rudd has been giving money to his dad, and his dad is a total leech, and he's a total guilt tripper. And so um, it's... It's, it's evident that in talking about his dad and his relationship with his dad, he gets really uncomfortable and kind of fidgety. Um, and so the truth finally comes out, and here is sort of their, um, this is after they've made the list, and the movie's about three quarters of the way over, and they kind of realize that the list isn't working and that the happiness they could have grabbed, for whatever reason, they haven't been able to grab. F-bombs galore. So... <laughs> How's the record company going, Pete? What? Not great. I'm still waiting for numbers to come in. What have you heard? A couple numbers have trickled in. It's lower than we expected. Then why are you giving Larry money? What? I know everything. I talked to the accountant. All right, you know what? I don't want to get into some nasty fight, so can we please talk to each other the way the therapist told us to talk to each other? Fine. Fine. It makes me feel sad when you are dishonest. I understand it makes you feel bad when I am dishonest with you. It hurts my feelings when you treat me with contempt and corner me and try and trick me into lying. Okay. It makes me sad when it's so easy to trick you into lying because you're such a lying shitbag. That's not, you can't do that. You can't do that. The therapist said you're not allowed to judge me. That's not a judgment. That's just a fact. Fair enough. Sometimes I withhold truth. That is true. But it's only because I'm scared to death of your crazy-ass illogical overreactions. Well, it hurts me inside and triggers me. When you're such a dishonest shit that you're lending your father money without telling me while your record company's going bankrupt and we're on the verge of losing our fucking house! What else are you lying about? I've taken Viagra for two years. I ate six muffins downstairs a while ago, and my cholesterol level is 305. My heart could explode at any second. These might be my very last words. Oh, and I gave Charlotte antibiotics when you weren't looking. That's why her ear got better. So go fuck your witch doctor. 
are we even doing? What are we doing? This is not making me happy. You're not happy. You don't like me. I can feel that. I'm not blind. Jesus. We're like business associates. We're like brother and sister. There's no passion there. We're not like brother and sister. You know, we're like, we're like Simon and Garfunkel. And somehow you turned me into Garfunkel. I don't even know what that means. Art Garfunkel. What's wrong with Art Garfunkel? He has a beautiful voice. He's got an amazing voice. He can put a harmony to anything. But what I'm saying is that you turned me into him. What the hell are you talking about? What? Simon controls him. That's because Simon writes the fucking songs. He's the better one. You know what? I see the way you look at our kids. You have so much love and compassion for them. You never look at me like that. Ever. Would we even still be together if I didn't get pregnant 14 years ago? You know what? I'm not gonna go down that road. That... Would we? Okay. I just, yeah, I love the sad ones, don't I? Um, but it was also funny. So, um, we're, we're still talking about unforgiveness, and, and here, I guess, what I, what, I, what I see from this clip is the sort of fixation on transgressions. Um, but what I also see is that the fixation on transgressions is connected to the fact that there is such a danger with high expectations. And where else do we have high expectations but with the ones we love and with the ones that um, we spend so much time with? Um, our, our romanticism is like at its peak when we're in communication with um, the person that is not the idealized uh, romantic partner that we, would, that we thought we were choosing. And it's, it's so interesting. She says, you know, like, we have become like business associates. And what is business associates but like a constant, like a constant checking in on expectations or a, or a constant like project management sort of model. And, um, and then Paul Rudd says, you've made me Garfunkel, you know? And, and she's like, yeah, because Simon writes the songs, he's better. And, and it's, it's so, I mean, it's so, um, like, it's so loud and clear, but it's, it's, it's true that, I mean, these, like, these expectations that we have, they become like props for our own self-justification. Um, they become these, like, dividing lines between um, how we think our life should have gone and uh, how it has actually gone. And a lot of times we throw that, uh, that pain, that dissonance upon the person that we, that we love the most, the person who's like our, our, our greatest advocate. And um, there's that Onion, this classic un Onion headline that's like, um, like uh, girlfriend turns boyfriend into man she's totally disinterested in. <laughs> and, and like that is, that is a perfect description of what we just watched, that like we slowly, we slowly through our, our obsession with high expectations, our, our expectations on how we want to look in the world, um, how that becomes then um, the ruin of, of our relationships and how something that was so loving becomes something so transaction, transactional. Um, okay, so there's, there's a guy, Alain de Baton, um, I never know how to say his name, but he's, he's, a, he's an English philosopher, psychotherapist, novelist, like one of those guys that's super annoying because he does everything and everybody loves him for it. But, um, but we love him. He's great. And one of the things that he talks about is this, this propensity to have really high expectations in uh, our relationships. And um, one of the points he makes is that... Um, our optimism, our optimism, and, and this is especially true in America, um, our optimism gets us in trouble more often um, than not. And so this is, this is from one of his books on relationships. Um, 
and I'll just read it. Um, right, he's talking about marital relationships, but really this could be any close relationship. I think you could probably also make this about um, your children or, um, or even your closest friends. Strangely, even when we've had pretty disappointing experiences, we don't lose faith in our expectations. Hope reliably triumphs over experience. It's always very tempting to console ourselves with an apparently very reasonable thought. The reason it didn't work out this time was not that the expectations were too high, but that we directed them onto the wrong person. We weren't compatible enough. So rather than adjust our ideas of what relationships are meant to be like, we shift our hopes to a new target on whom we can direct our recklessly elevated hopes. At times, in relationships, it can be almost impossible to believe that the problem lies with relationships in general, for the issues are so clearly focused in on the particular person we happen to be with, their tendency not to listen to us, to be too cold, to be cloyingly present. But this isn't the problem of love, we believe. It wouldn't be like this with another person, the one we saw at the conference. They looked nice, and we had a brief chat about the theme of the keynote speaker. Partly because of the slope of their neck and a lilt in their accent, we reached an overwhelming conclusion. With them, it would be easier. There could be a better life waiting around the corner. How true is that, though? How true is it that in a, in a moment, in a moment of uh, transgression with someone uh, that you love very much, it is so easy, especially in romantic relationships, uh, you have the opportunity to put your expectations away, but you will hold on to those until your dying breath. Um, much like, like Tim Blackman said in his talk, like that is, that is what we hold on to with a firm grasp. But um, instead we think, it was just the wrong person. Like this person is so messed up and so wrong for me. Like I needed a better, a better fit. Um, so, um, in this in this picture that he's giving, like transgression, it, it isn't just about one wrong. It's it's actually it's a person's whole self that is that is being inadequate, you know, and and these high expectations that we have, what they actually do for us is they give us an escape hatch. They give us a way a way out of feeling empathy for another person. Um, but it also is incredibly stressful. It's incredibly stressful um, to have these high expectations and constantly be living in this dissonance between the expectations you have and the life you're living together. And so what it takes is a huge amount of denial about yourself. You constantly have to be denying the truth about yourself, that you are exactly as obnoxious as the other person. You are exactly as troubled and exactly as selfish, and you are exactly as like cloyingly present as they are. And so one thing that we have to keep in intact when we are unforgiving is our high anthropology. We have to have a high sense of ourselves rather than a low sense of ourselves. And this is why unforgiveness if it is a coping mechanism to deal with this gap, it is a bad coping mechanism because what the psychologists say is that it is as stressful as the transgression itself. Living in unforgiveness, it's not just that you're living with the transgression, but you're also putting more stress on yourself because you're constantly living in this dissonance. The, the injustice gap is always going to be open. It's forever open. And so, if unforgiveness is a bad coping mechanism, what about forgiveness as a coping mechanism? And that just sounds impossible, right? Um, well, first I wanted to give a list of, um, and again, this is like human relationships forgiveness. This is not theology. But this is what psychology says are some of the sort of misunderstandings about um, forgiveness. Um, and if we have time to talk, I'd, I'd love to talk through these with you. But some of them, I'll just read a few of them. But forgiveness does not necessarily mean reconciliation. You can forgive someone, and, um, and you don't end up together. You don't, 
you don't make it work. Um, but forgiveness can still be extended despite it. Forgiveness is always beneficial to the forgiver. Um, that's just not true. Like sometimes forgiveness actually, um, it, you're, you're, still, you're still living in, in like the, the trauma of what, what hurts you. Um, repentance is always a precursor to forgiveness. Sometimes forgiveness happens despite the fact that the person hasn't made recompense or hasn't said, I'm sorry. Um, if the offender does not make restitution, forgiveness will encourage repeat offenses. Psychology has shown that even, even though that's what we think, we're inclined to think that forgiveness is weak and um, and so that if we do forgive someone, we're kind of just like becoming a doormat. And um, what studies have shown is that actually, uh, if you want to call it being a doormat, being a doormat tends to actually keep people t to st stick around, not to offend again. Um, because one of the hugest elements of forgiveness is empathy. And so the person who you are forgiving finally has a hand reached out to them where they can understand that like they're not the only screw up. They're not the only one who's made this mistake. Um, okay, so um, Worthington, the same guy, he, he divides forgiveness in two ways. He says one kind of way is like decisional forgiveness. And that's like when you hear someone say, like I, forget, I forgave them, but I still I still don't feel forgiveness. I still don't feel like I've gotten over it. Um, that tends to be like a moral decision. You know, it's like someone willing to, willing to make the movement towards forgiveness, but they still can't find it. You know, a lot of times I can't find it in my heart to, to forgive, um, but I do forgive them. Um, and then the second one is emotional. And emotional is um, what he says is, is more beneficial uh, for both the, per the, the person um, feeling the resentment or feeling the unforgiveness, but also for the relationship. Um, but it can't be coerced. It's, it's, a, it's a total replacement of emotions. You know, your negative, your negative emotions towards a transgressor or a transgression are suddenly replaced with, if not positive emotions, not negative emotions. And and so there's a lot of healing that can happen there, but this is what Christianity, not psychology, would, would call forgiveness. This is like the change of heart. You know, this is like, um, you know, repentance or like the turning. Um, and so I want to show you how that looks in This is 40, and then we can talk about it. But um, again, I'm sorry, JP Morgan, so many F-bombs in this one. But basically... Uh, the, um, the 40th birthday is sort of like the big climax and um, it is like the perfect, it is the perfect storm, of course. Like that's the way these things go. So expectations have been ratcheted up. All of the in-laws are in town, uh, including uh, Paul Rudd's father who has been a total mooch and all of that stuff comes to the surface. There's a huge blowout fight and Leslie Mann has, has just told Paul Rudd that she's pregnant. Um, and so all of this is coming in at once and he just takes off. He just gets on his bike and just leaves and it's his birthday party. And so it doesn't actually seem like forgiveness could be possible in this moment, um, but somehow it happens and I'll just leave it there. my door on you. I opened my door. Oh, fuck. I was right there. 
You're supposed to look before you open your door. I was in a fucking bike path. That's a blind spot. There's no fucking bike path. There's a residential section. Uh, Get your head out of your ass. Pay attention. Open your goddamn eyes. What are you doing? Sleepwalking? You're supposed to look to see if a biker's coming through. You're supposed to look. It's not my job to look out for you. You look out for yourself. I don't look out for you. I don't see you. I don't know where the fuck you are, what you're doing. No one is ever looking out for me. I need your name and your number. Why? Because you're going to pay for my door. Fuck you. Why don't you pay for my bike and my face, you fucking prick? <gasps> don't disrespect me. Are you sure that's him? I don't think that's him. That's his dad. Ah, I gotta write down your license plate. Oh. Range Rover. <laughs> Of Sunland. What are you doing? Guess the party didn't turn out like you planned. It wasn't a good party. Hi. Hi. I'll bring you in as soon as his x-rays are finished. Okay. Okay. Is he okay? Yeah, he has a broken rib and he's been crying a little bit, but uh, he'll be fine. <laughs> you know, Pete was never a real fighter. But that's why he married you. That's why he loves you, because you're the fighter. And you need that. One person in a relationship's got a punch. Do you need that in a good way? Oh, it's a, it's a high compliment. Listen, I know what you're worried about. You think he's going to turn into me, but I don't think it's going to happen. He's smarter and probably a little cuter, a little less Jewy. Although after 50, that's all going to change. Be prepared to wake up one day with a rabbi. But the good news is, you know, I'll love you forever. That's in our DNA. We stick around. He worries about you, you know? Puts a lot of pressure on him. I know. I just, I don't have anyone else to talk to about. Why don't you talk to Claire? Oh, if I open up to her, she'll leave me. No, she won't. Mm. Larry, she loves you. I know, but there's a certain point at which she just can't stay. <laughs> I guess it's hard to forgive somebody if they don't formally apologize to you. <laughs> Are you apologizing? Very close. <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm glad everybody's okay. Oh, thank you. because they helped each other achieve their destiny. Great. I'm gonna have some freaky ass nightmares. our lives so much better before we tried to change everything. I'm sorry. No, I'm sorry. I don't want to keep anything from you. 
I love you. You're my wife. I just didn't want to let you down. Are you mad that I'm pregnant? No, I'm not mad. I'm thrilled. You don't feel trapped? I sometimes feel like I trapped you. I don't feel trapped. Really? No. You should because I've trapped you. You can't go anywhere. I'm going to get you pregnant every 10 years for the rest of your life. You can never leave me. Ever. I never feel trapped by you. I'm so happy to be with you and I love you so much. You're my favorite person in the whole world. God damn it, why am I crying like this? Something is wrong with me. You're pregnant. Oh yeah. Shit. I was just outside telling your dad that I liked him. What if he thinks I like him now? No. I don't want him to think I like him that much. No, it will never happen. Can you believe it? This is the craziest thing ever. What are we going to do with the third baby? I have no idea. How are we going to afford it? We'll sell the house. We don't have to. Kind of do. We kind of do. We'll make new memories in a new house. I love you. Is there anything you want to do for your birthday? It's been the worst birthday ever. There is one thing, but I don't think you'll like it. What? I wouldn't mind going to see some music. Would you want to do that? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Well, I don't believe you, but you're sweet for saying that. I'm gonna break you out of here. I can just leave on my own volition. It's not a mental institution. Can you? <laughs> it's not like one flew over the cuckoo's nest. Please don't put a pillow over my face. <laughs> Let's get out of here, McMurphy. You got it, Chief. Will you carry me? <laughs> You've been carrying me all this time. Okay. Um, uh, I could watch Paul Rudd just like read the phone book. Um, okay, so uh, how does forgiveness happen? I, I think that's just such a beautiful and realistic picture of like interpersonal forgiveness. Um, but the way that it happens is, uh, first of all, uh, failure, you know, um, a breakthrough that usually looks like. Uh, a bike wreck, you know, or some sort of some sort of glimpse into universal weakness, some some chance to sort of have um, to see the world and the the people around you in that world as suffering and as not being fair, the, the world not being fair. You know, he the guy opens the door and he goes through the window and the guy has no. Like, no, <laughs> there's no apology. And he's like, listen, I don't care about you. I don't care about your life and what you do. And, and like, that is the world. Like, that, that is, um, that, that's sort of the callousness of the world. And, and like, exposure to that, that w the suffering that that creates um, is, is sort of a reality check. So this is from uh, De Botton again. Uh, he, and he's talking about this, um, uh, that this sort of, this kind of thing uh, drives us to pessimism, a healthy dose of, of pessimism rather than optimism. And that is what we would call a low anthropology, a low view of, of what humans are capable of. Um, so, so this is what he says. A solution to our distress and agitation lies in a curious area with a philosophy of pessimism. It's an odd and unappealing thought. Pessimism sounds very unattractive. It's associated with failure. It's usually what gets in the way of better things. But when it comes to relationships, expectations are the enemies of love. Being disappointing is not a specific failure of individuals. It is a universal phenomenon. A partner has their unique and specific problems, but anyone else will have their own different, equally maddening repertoire of hang-ups, failings, and obsessions. What is genuinely special about our partners is that we have come to know their worst sides so well. The charm of a new person rests on the fact that we don't yet know them well enough to understand how they too could drive us mad. That's so great. Um, so the inevitability of disappointment is kind of the first, the first step, I guess. And this is not a how-to, it's just this is what tends to happen when forgiveness happens. Um, the second is a glimpse into the offender, um, the, the transgressor, their own inner child. Like, you have a, you have a glimpse into 
uh, Paul Rudd's inner child when he gets hit by the car. And Leslie Mann is, is just pulling up when she sees him like stomping like, like a kid at the unfairness of this situation. And, and her, his dad is right next to her in the passenger seat. And, um, and so you see this, this child who's dealing with the expectations of his dad, who's dealing with guilt, and then who is trying to run away from his problems, but then he gets hit by a car. And suddenly, um, you see not just your spouse who you're in this intractable conflict with, but you see someone who is a child, actually, who's actually the same as they were when they were little. And um, in psychology, there's, a, there's a, a theory called attachment theory. And it's basically that it basically says that we as people, we, we have patterns that we got when we were kids and that we are still fighting the battles that we, are, that we fought when we were kids. And we, we deal with problems the same way we did when we were kids and how our parents taught us how to deal with those problems. And like my wife this past week told me that I make the face that my dad makes when he's like, when he's disappointed, you know? And I do it with her and I know that face and that face sucks. <laughs> um, but, um, but attachment theory, describes a reality that we all know, and when we see our loved one as a child, uh, it doesn't seem like a very good idea to see the person you love as a child, but it actually is a very generous thing to do, to give someone uh, the benefit of treating them as if they're not in control, because they're not. So um, Dorothy Martin is sort of a, a patron saint of Mockingbird. Um, she died this, this year, actually, and, and she was a psychologist and a therapist here in New York. Um, and she, she did a lot of work studying psychology of children. But in this particular, um, in this particular passage, she's talking about um, uh, one particular child who was just uh, violently angry. And... And that if you, if you believe in attachment theory, which she does, um, you, you kind of want to blame it on the mother, maybe. And, um, and so this is what she says. Uh, if one spends a bit of time with her in an attitude of listening, this is um, in spending time with the mother, it becomes quickly manifest that the mother did not willfully deprive her child. The difficulty lay in the fact that she too for various reasons, was deprived, in her turn, of good enough mothering and fathering. She herself, little, she herself had little nurture to offer her child. She also was brought up by a mother and father who likewise had little to give because they also had been brought up by parents who had little to give. We are caught in an infinite series of mirrors in which repetition of man's error is inevitable. Um, so basically, uh, you, you, can't, you can't leave the world of, of, of being sort of wounded. And when you, when you see uh, someone you love as being that wounded person, that is the birthplace of empathy. And empathy is very close to forgiveness. It's not forgiveness, but it's close. And what it gives us is instead of the dissonance between like the ideal and the injustice that we had to go through, we have a new dissonance, which is the truth about the situation and about uh, the transgression, but then also our similarity to, to that transgressor. We see that there's like a commonality between us, which is really frightening, um, but also relieving. But that's still not forgiveness. And so um, the third thing that I wanted to talk about as we close is that there has to be some hope in ultimate justice and ultimate forgiveness. Because just like Mildred in Three Billboards, there is no, there will be no justice that is satisfactory. And that's what the whole movie is about, that her, her, her rage is endless because the justice she seeks can't be can't be made right. Um, so this is from um, Deborah Hunsinger. But first, I just wanted to say that like the forgiveness, the act of forgiveness, um, this is sort of where psychology just sort of hits a roadblock because 
it's a gift. It's not something that you can, you can conjure with a step-by-step -step formula because we always have these perennial longings to exact justice. And um, we always want to sort of recover the hatchet that we buried. Um, you know, a, a moment of forgiveness between like Paul Rudd and Leslie Mann, like the hatchets will come right back out in the next scene, you know, because that is, that is the life of sinners and, um, and hurting children. So um, I, I just think about the, the story of the unforgiving servant in the Bible and how, um, you know, this, this servant is given a, a, like an unimaginable gift. And it's so mind-blowing and so beautiful that he was given this gift and freed up. And the very next scene, he is like arguing over pennies with, um, with his neighbor. And that's us. That is us. Like we are, we, are benef we're, we are benefited by the forgiveness of God, and yet we are so paltry with our own extensions of forgiveness because we are that parable. So this is Hunziker. Uh, she's, a, she's a counselor. Um, True forgiveness and reconciliation don't happen as a response to a moral demand. They emerge rather from a healed and grateful heart from one who already knows herself to have received God's forgiveness, to conceive of forgiveness as a psychological possibility or as a moral demand is to misconceive it. But if one understands the asymmetrical order between divine and human activity, one sees that the possibility of forgiveness um, and reconciliation arises not from willed effort, only from God's prior actions of mercy, forgiveness, and healing. Um, so in thinking about that injustice gap between sort of the is and the ought, empathy can close it, you know, um, and our sort of, our efforts at forgiveness, our, our decisions to, forget, to forgive, and even our emotional um, connections with forgiveness, like they can close the injustice gap and they can heal us, but only by so much. Psychological forgiveness can only get us so far. And what it, what it does is it actually gets us into basically just an understanding that we are a communion of sinners. It, it just opens our eyes to the fact that we're all sinners and we're all in need of forgiveness. But it can't actually close the gap. It can't make the gap disappear. And that is where we need a savior. And we need, we need to have the slate completely wiped clean. And we need to have someone who can not just um, bring the dissonance closer, but to remove it entirely. And that is the dissonance between who we should be and who we are. And that, that is God's gift in Jesus. And, um, and it, can't, it can't be extended any other way. Um, the story that kept coming to mind between sort of the limits of empathy and, and the radical nature of God's forgiveness is, um, is the woman caught in adultery. And so I just wanted to close by reading that. And um, I don't know how we are on time, um, but I'll read that. And then you guys are free to go or I'll stay up here and, and we can talk. Um, so this is from John 7. Of course, I grabbed the Bible that has like size eight font. Okay. Then each of them went home while Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And making her stand before all of them, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? They said this to test him so that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, 
Let anyone among you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And once again, he bent down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they went away, one by one, beginning with the elders. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus straightened up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, sir. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go your way, and from now on, do not sin. Amen. Um, thank you guys for coming, and, and I'd love to chat if, 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 if you have questions or, or anything, but also feel free to um, go to lunch. I'm not sure. Yeah, I think it's happening soon. So. Thank you. Thank you.